All right, so it's good to be here. It's certainly glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, find verse 50. Matthew 27, verse 50. So I want to tell you a little story before we get there while you're finding your place. There was, there was an Amish family who obviously lived in the Amish country. It was a husband, his wife, he had a son and a daughter. And they had never seen the city before. And so they decided one day they're going to take a family trip into the city to see what all the fuss is about. And so he loads up the family. They go to the big city, and they don't know where to go. And so they stop someone. They said, hey, we've never seen the city before. Tell us what we might go see that would give us a good reference to what we've been missing. They said, go to the mall. Just go to the mall, and you'll see what America's about. I said, okay. So he goes to the mall. They get out, and they go inside, and they're just mesmerized by the shops and the sounds and the people. And they're kind of just standing there in awe. And, of course, the mother and the daughter, they're drawn to the, the dresses and the shoes, and the men are drawn to anything but that. And so they decide they will just split up. So the mother and the daughter goes off one way, and the father and the son goes off another way. And so pretty soon, the father and son, they're walking through the mall, and they come to this thing, and it's into the wall, and it's silver, and it's shiny, and it's got buttons on the side, and it's got numbers across the top. And the boy looks at his dad and goes, Dad, what is that? He says, I don't know, son. I've never seen anything like it. And so while they're standing there staring at it, this elderly lady comes by, says, excuse me, and they part, and they let her go up to it. She pushes a button and goes inside. Now, again, remember, she's elderly. She's using a cane. She's got gray hair, and, and she's having trouble walking. She pushes the button. The wall of the silver shiny thing opens up. She goes inside. They're standing there staring at each other. And so some noises start happening, and the numbers at the top go three, two, one. And they're standing there looking at each other. And so, in a few minutes, they hear some more noises. And it goes, one, two, three. And out walks this beautiful young lady in her 20s. <laughs> and the father says, quick, go get your mother. <clears throat> now, wouldn't it be nice if we could walk into an elevator and just change? Wouldn't that be great if we could change our physical appearance, if we could change anything that we just didn't like about ourselves? Wouldn't that be awesome? It would. So let's think about change for a few minutes. Often we hear the phrase, people don't like change. But you know what? I don't think that's true. I think it's, it's the circumstances surrounding the change. So for instance, if the Publishers Clearinghouse Prize Patrol pulled up to your house this afternoon and says, congratulations, you just won $5,000 a week for the rest of your life. You'd like that change, wouldn't you? be some good change, wouldn't it? Uh, if your boss or someone at work has just been a real pain in the behind for a long time, and suddenly they start treating you with kindness, maybe give you a raise, you'd like that change too as well, wouldn't you? How about if you've been trying to lose some weight, and all of a sudden your, your pants button good, and your shirts are loose, and you start liking what you see in the mirror, and you feel better? Is that good change? Absolutely, that's some good change. However, there are some changes we don't like. You know, maybe after a doctor's visit, you get some bad news about your health, and the doctor says, hey, if you don't change your eating habits, if you don't start exercising, you risk developing diabetes or heart disease. Now, you're not going to like that change, are you? 
Because after that, he's going to make you start eating things that, as Pastor Dennis used to say, if it tastes good, you got to spit it out, right? So there are some changes we don't like. So you see, change really does depend upon the circumstances surrounding the change, doesn't it? But what about matters of spirituality and eternal life? Can a person change? Yes, they can. Did you know that the instant you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you have gone from death to life? That's a big change, isn't it? Before Christ, we were dead men and women walking. Once we receive Christ, we go from death to life. All right, so now this is inward change, and we can't see it on the outside. No one knows if you're truly saved, only you. But with this inward change that the believer receives, should there also be an outward change that others can see? Yes, there should be. I say yes. Now, if you've been present at my previous sermons, you've heard me use this phrase. I said, no one comes away from an encounter with Jesus unchanged. And if your faith has not changed you, there's a good chance it has not saved you either. Now listen, I realize that's a strong statement and it can take some people back. But scripture backs this up. Let me give you some examples. Peter and the disciples, they encountered Jesus one by one. They were changed. And guess what they did? They changed the world. Think about it. Twelve uneducated men turned the world upside down. It wasn't always pretty, but Jesus gave them a job to do, and they did it. For 11 of them, it cost them their very lives. They died as martyrs, but they were so changed by Jesus, and they considered it an honor to die like him, for him, and in his name. How about the Samaritan woman at the well? She encountered Jesus, and she was a changed woman. She went and told her whole village about Jesus. How about Nicodemus? He encountered Jesus, and he was a changed man. Mary Magdalene encountered Jesus, and she was a changed woman. The dead son that was raised to life by Jesus at the funeral in the city of Nain. You bet he and his mother were changed. A demon-possessed madman chained up in the Gronzanese encountered Jesus, and he was a changed man. A woman who was about to be stoned for adultery met Jesus, and she was changed. Paul encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he was changed. Lazarus died and was brought back to life. You think he was changed? You bet. A thief hanging on a cross beside Jesus saw Jesus for who he was, and he was a changed man. This is not to mention all the blind that could see, the deaf that could hear, and the lame that could walk. You think they were all changed? You bet. Absolutely. So doesn't it stand to reason that when we encounter Jesus and we lay down our will and accept his will, will there not be change in us? Yes, there will. Well, this morning, there's one more man we want to look at who was changed by Jesus, and today I want to single him out. What did this man see that changed him, and what can we learn from it? So let's see. So the title of my sermon is called Metamorphosis. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. That's a big, long word, and you may say, well, that's a crazy name for a sermon, isn't it? But let me tell you why I chose that. Webster Dictionary defines this metamorphosis word as a change of the form or nature of a thing into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. You see, that's what happens to us when we accept Jesus. We are completely new creation. We go from one thing to something completely different. Amen? Because why? Because of Jesus. Jesus is the name that changes everything. All right, so before we read Matthew 27, starting in verse 50, let me set the scene for you here. So Jesus has been arrested he has been falsely accused and tried. He has been sentenced to crucifixion. And in verse 50, we find Jesus, after hanging on the cross for some six hours, 
He finally gives up his life for you and I. And remember, he gave it up. They didn't take it, okay? So stand with me. Let's read Matthew 27, 50 through 54. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to see it, open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to receive it, open our mouths to speak it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want you to think about something this morning. There was only one person who was constantly with Jesus in the last 16 hours or so of his life. It was not his mother, Mary, as much as she wanted to be. It was not the majority of the disciples. Remember, most of them have done what? They scattered. Only a few followed at a distance, and only one made it to the cross. That was John, the disciple. No, the one person who was close to Jesus from his arrest until his burial was a person who did not choose to be there. He was there because it was his duty, his job, his assignment. This person was the Roman centurion we find in Matthew 27, 54. So what did this centurion see that convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God? That is what he proclaimed, isn't it? Verse 54, that's what he said. But before we dive into that, I think we need to understand the position this centurion is in. We need to understand what is a centurion, why was he there? So allow me just for a minute to bring you up to speed on the Roman military. The Roman military was a complex and well-organized apparatus. The Romans were great at a lot of things, but they were especially skilled at war. The Roman military was one of the most polished and well-organized in history and was carefully managed down to the individual soldier. At its heart was the centurion. This was the Roman officer who commanded men directly on the battlefield, not only serving as commanders, Centurions also engaged in combat and were tremendously respected for their bravery, valor, and leadership. They were heroes to the Roman people and key figures in one of the most successful militaries of all time. During the time of the early Roman Empire, the Roman military was divided into legions, which were units of roughly 6,000 soldiers. Each legion was broken into units of around 600 men called cohorts. Within each cohort were six centuries which was a unit of around 100 soldiers. The officer in charge was a century, or a centurion. The word century comes from the Latin centum, which means 100, obviously. Altogether, there were six centurions in a cohort and 60 in a legion. There's going to be a quiz before you can leave that you have to pass before you can leave, okay? So I hope you got, I hope you got all that. So what we need to know is this centurion present at the crucifixion of Jesus was not your ordinary soldier. The rank of centurion was not obtained easily. He would be a battle-hardened veteran of combat. He would have seen his share of death and suffering. He was a feared and respected leader of, we know, at least 100 men. He did not make it to the rank of centurion by being warm and fuzzy or soft and cuddly. He would fear nothing and pity no one. In today's vernacular, we would describe him as the kind of person you did not mess with. So, 
Let me show you the kind of person real quick. Let's stay in chapter 27 of Matthew. Let's just jump back to verse 27 and 31. I want to show you what kind of person this was. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. You see, the centurion in verse 54 would have been right there giving his approval. He would be overseeing this beating and mocking and whipping Jesus. When the soldiers divided up Jesus' clothing, this centurion had been right there in the mix. When on the way to Golgotha and Jesus could no longer carry the weight of his cross, the centurion would order Simon of Cyrene, you, get over here, carry his cross. In just a second, when we see the crowds mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross, this centurion was right there nodding along and cheering them on. So back to my original question, what does a hardened man like this centurion have to witness and then declare, truly, this was the Son of God? So if you're taking notes, write down number one. What's the first thing he saw? Compassion. The centurion saw compassion from Jesus. Now, we're going to borrow from Luke a little bit here. Let's look at what Luke has to say about Jesus as Jesus was being led to his crucifixion. It should be up on the screen there for you. Luke 23 27 through 28. It says, A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. You see, these verses tell us that as Jesus was being led to his death, there were women following along. And they were mourning, they were crying, and they were lamenting the treatment of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And your children. Now, why would Jesus say that? Before we get into that, let me, let me show you something. Ladies, let me show you the love that Jesus had for women in particular. As far as the gospel record is concerned, no woman was ever the enemy of Jesus. And Jesus was never the enemy of womankind. Jesus' example, his teachings, and most of all, his redemption have done much to dignify and elevate women. The news of a Savior being born was first shared with a Jewish maiden. Mary. His death was witnessed by grieving women, and the good news of the resurrection was announced first to who? A woman who had been demon-possessed. Some of the more notable healings recorded in the Gospels were women. In a culture dominated by men, there were a lot of firsts for women instituted by Jesus. Ladies, take heart. Jesus knows your worth, and so should we all. Now, this morning, when we were getting ready, Monica told me that women are complicated. Men... Amen, right? They are. But Jesus knows their worth, and so should we. So back here to our scripture in Luke 23, Jesus appreciated the sympathy of these women, but yet he had compassion on them because he knew something else. He used it to teach them an important lesson. You see, while they were weeping about his death, Jesus was thinking about their future. Because the nation of Israel had rejected Jesus, much suffering was getting ready to be forthcoming at the hands of the Romans. History tells us that the Romans attempted to starve the Jews into submission. And as hungry men attempted to fight off the Romans in Jerusalem, they would take the food that was reserved for the women and children and they ate it. Because war consumes a lot of calories, right? So these women and children would be left to starve 
to death. Jesus knew this. And so as Jesus looks on them with compassion, we're left to wonder what blessings those women in the nation of Israel could have received if only they had received Jesus. Furthermore, there are at least 18 instances of Jesus being moved with compassion, weeping with compassion, or showing compassion in the Gospels. I can't even begin to scratch the surface of his compassion, but give me just a, a minute to show you just a little bit. All I can do is tell you this. So here goes. Jesus modeled love and action and compassion. Jesus sympathized with sinful people who were suffering the consequences of inherited depravity and personal sinfulness. Jesus knew that those around him were spiritually weak and emotionally brittle. Without judgment, Jesus gently strengthened the weak and ignited their faith. Jesus looked upon the multitude and he was driven not to disgust, but to compassion. Scripture tells us that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors who were so despised. Jesus physically touched the lepers of his day, people, the people that others would not dare go around. Jesus lifted up the common people that the religious leaders looked down upon. Jesus taught the crowds. He fed the hungry. He, filled the, he, fed the sick. he freed those possessed by demons. He met people in their suffering. Jesus' heart and his arms were wide open to the lowest, the least, and the lost. So did Jesus show compassion? He certainly did. Now, and here in our scripture today, Jesus looked out at those on Golgotha, and instead of being filled with hate, instead of cursing them, he was filled with compassion. You see, the Jews who watched Jesus being crucified thought God was punishing Jesus for his sins. But the truth was that Jesus was voluntarily and willingly suffering and dying for their sins and ours. That's the ultimate display of compassion. So let me ask us this morning, first to the church, have we gotten so comfortable in our churches that we have lost our compassion for others? Have we circled the wagons, so to speak? Do we look out at a lost and dying world outside our doors and by our actions show that we don't care? Are we just hanging on waiting for Jesus to come rescue us? That's not what the church is to be. The church's chief function is to glorify God. And so listen, our church is to be active and alive. We're to be beating back the forces of evil. We're to be rescuing the perishing. We're to be helping the lost find salvation. We're to be giving the broken and hurting a place of refuge. Now to us as individuals, do we see someone that's hurting and like the priest, do we pass by on the other side when it's within our ability to help them? Now don't get me wrong. The first excuse we say is, well, I can't help everyone. That's true, but that's no excuse not to help someone. You and I can make a difference in someone's life and every day those people are there if only we're willing to see it. Listen, we should be so radically different in our kindness and compassion that others can't help but notice. Jesus said his followers would be known by what? Your love. So are we showing love to the world? Let's make sure we're doing that. So what I'm asking you in this first point this morning is this. Has your faith moved you away from cynicism and judgment and not caring and to the display of compassion that Jesus showed for others? My prayer for you and myself today is that it has. Listen, a lot of times, you know, all it takes to brighten someone's day is what? A smile, a kind word. We've lost our compassion. So, the first thing the centurion saw was the compassion. Let's look at number two. The next thing the centurion observed in Jesus was mercy and grace. The Gospels tell us that two criminals were also crucified with Jesus, one on his left, the other on his right. 
Let's look at Luke's version of this again. Luke 23, 39 through 43 should be up on the screen. You shouldn't have to turn there. It says, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You have just witnessed the full display of God's mercy and grace right there from the cross. But before we move on, let's make sure we understand the terms. What is mercy? What is grace? Let's deal with mercy first. What is mercy? Here is the simplest way to put what mercy is. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. Let me give you an example. Let's say that this afternoon around 1 o'clock when I'm through preaching, just, kid, just kidding maybe. <clears throat> anyway, you leave the parking lot in your car and you're disgusted at me for keeping you past 12 o'clock. You mash on the accelerator to get to the cracker barrel so you can wait in line. Now, the speed limit on Smoky Park Highway is 45 miles per hour. You're doing 65. So, Mr. Trooper pulls you over. And when this trooper, who's actually having a pretty good day, actually buys your story that you were mad at the preacher for being long-winded, and you weren't paying attention to your speed, and you promised you will never speed again so long as you shall drive, he says, okay, you can go, but slow down. You just received mercy. You know why? Because you were guilty. You were speeding. You deserved a ticket, but the trooper did not give you one. That's mercy. Let's look at grace. What is grace? Biblical grace is defined as unmerited favor. This time, you receive something you did not deserve. Let's use the same scenarios a second ago. So the same trooper, after, after having caught you speeding and not giving you a ticket and telling you to slow down, then says... Did you say you were going to the Cracker Barrel? I have a couple of gift cards for that place. Here, please take them and enjoy them. You just received grace. You were given something you did not deserve or earn. It was given purely out of the goodness of the one giving. So here in our text, Jesus extends mercy to this criminal because as the criminal admits, I'm here because I deserve this. The criminal deserves his punishment, but Jesus will pardon is sin. Here the criminal does not deserve grace, but he will receive it because he sees Jesus for who he is. And he responds in faith, asking Jesus for forgiveness. And Jesus will give it to him. That's grace. Now let's look at how mercy and grace work together. Look at Romans 5, 8. Remember last week when Ben was preaching, he said there are some bad buts in the Bible, and there are a lot of them. Let me show you some good buts today. Look at Romans 5, 8. But God, that's the two greatest words in all of Scripture. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ died while we were still sinners. I deserve eternal separation from God because of my sin. But in his mercy, instead, the price of my salvation was paid for by Christ. Even before what? Even before I realized I was a sinner. Jesus died for me. One more good but. Let's look at Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but 
The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, the wages of sin is death. You deserve that. I deserve it. You see, that is what we deserve. But in his mercy, God instead gives us what we don't deserve, the free gift of eternal life. We can't earn it and we don't deserve it. That is the grace of our Lord and Savior. You see, my salvation didn't cost me anything, but it cost Jesus everything. And once I accepted that free gift of salvation, now I am justified or made righteous before God. All that is necessary for you and I to be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven has been paid for by Christ. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe and you could not pay. The gift of salvation is free and the motive of the gift is nothing more than the grace of the giver. Our only responsibility is to receive that gift by faith. So just as Jesus poured out mercy and grace, should we? Should the followers of Jesus Christ be pouring out mercy and grace? Yes. We're often quick to judge others and slow to give mercy and grace. Think about it this way. What if God only gave you the mercy and grace that you were willing to give others? That should give us pause, shouldn't it? So notice this also. While one criminal believes and receives, the other neglects and rejects. This other criminal heard the same words that Jesus prayed, which we'll look at in a minute. He also witnessed the salvation of the other criminal on his other side. He saw the world go dark, and yet he refuses the gift that is offered. So it is today. We may wonder how two people can hear the same gospel and come to different conclusions. One receives God's offer of mercy and grace. The other rejects it. Now, there are a myriad of reasons why people reject Jesus. And while we can't see into the hearts of everyone, we do see that rejecting Christ usually falls into four general categories. And you're saying, uh-oh, he's going into categories. Listen, I'm only going to look at one this morning. If you want to hear the other three, I'm preaching a short sermon on June the 23rd at night. Come back, and we're going to look at all four of those categories that people reject Christ. But let's just deal with one of them. One of the reasons people reject Christ is fear of social rejection or persecution. Unbelievers a lot of times will not confess Christ because they're more concerned with their status among their peers than doing God's will. These people are like the Pharisees whose love of position and the esteem of others blinded them. John tells us in his gospel, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And here in our text today, I believe this is why one criminal accepted and one refuses Christ. This one that refused Christ. He hears the crowds mocking Jesus, and he too joins in, and he rejects Jesus. In other words, he sought the favor of the crowd rather than Jesus. What about us? You see, it's even easy as believers to fall into this trap. We worry what others will think. We don't speak out when we should, and we don't act when it's within our ability to do so. Listen, there's only one person who holds the future. Worry about what God thinks of you, not others. Seek only his approval. Listen, think about this. 100 years from now, nothing else but the decision you make for Christ will matter. Think about all that. All the things we're worrying, fretting, and striving for right now will not matter in 100 years. Only what is done for Christ will last. So let's make sure our priorities are in order. Number three, the third thing the centurion saw was forgiveness. The power of forgiveness was on full display in Jesus as well. Let's go back to our text, uh, chapter 27 of Matthew, but let's jump back a few verses, 39 through 44. 
So let me set the scene for you again. Jesus is in the middle of that six hours on the cross, and he is suffering. And Matthew tells us those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Just in case you did not know, crucifixion was the most cruel form of punishment. It was a horrible way to die. To crucify someone was considered so heinous that it was not even used upon Roman citizens. Did you know that? It was only used on non-citizens. In fact, it was considered so taboo that the Romans weren't even allowed to speak of it in the public square. So we see in verse 39, it says that the crowds who passed by. Jesus was not executed in some quiet, out-of-the-way place. He was crucified on a public highway where people were passing by. And on a day when there would have been perhaps even a million people in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. This was all part of the humiliation process. Another part of the humiliation process was that it was common to hang a sign around the person's neck to inform the passers-by of the crime they were guilty of. Pilate had a sign fashioned for Jesus that read, Here is the King of the Jews. This sign was written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, so that everyone in the city would be able to read it. You know why they wanted everyone to be able to read it? So they could all mock Jesus and get in on the cursing. Though this was all that passed by, could get in on it and, and say, as Jesus hung there, they could mock him and, and curse insults at him. Now, I think the most interesting thing that we see here is the fact that as those who mocked Jesus and told him to save himself, is that he could have. Jesus could have brought himself down from the cross. He could have called down the angels to stop all of this. In fact, from Thursday evening's arrest to his appearances before Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate, then the scourging he underwent, the mockery, being beaten and spit upon, Jesus could have stopped it all. It's easy to look at all this and say, why did Jesus show such weakness when he had the power to stop this? If that's what you're thinking, you missed the point. This is not weakness. This is great strength. The submission that Jesus portrayed to all of this showed his power. It proved him to be the Christ, to be in such submission to God that it, to his Father that he did not utter a single complaint. The Bible describes Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7 as being led to the slaughter like a lamb. The reason for this analogy is this. Lambs from a very young age get used to being held by humans. In fact, when it comes to the process of being sheared, they like it. They get used to it. So when they see someone coming, they think they're going to be sheared. And they come to them. They welcome it. However, when it comes time for the slaughter, the sheep knows no better. They submit willingly to it because they don't realize what's about to happen. Now let me be clear. Jesus knew full will what he was getting ready to face. But the reason the analogy of the lamb is used is because Jesus uttered no protest. It says, yet he opened his mouth, but he did not speak. If this had been you or I, we would have used that power Jesus possessed to wipe these people off the face of the earth. I would have. But praise God, he did not. 
Jesus is not like us, thank God. Listen, if Jesus had taken himself off the cross, then sin would not have been defeated. Sin would still hold its power over us. We would still be lost in our trespasses and sin. If Jesus had saved himself, then nobody else could be saved. Thank God he did not do that. But let's look at what he did do. Look at uh, Luke 23, 34a. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. What we see is that while Jesus is being crucified, he's praying to God. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, while Jesus was in pain and agony, he's making intercession for his enemies. Can you believe that? I can't. I believe it because it's true. I believe it because it's recorded. But my mind can't wrap itself around somebody that could love the people of the world so much that he would lay down his life for us and he would ask God to forgive his tormentors. That is what is amazing about amazing grace. So here we have the full display of forgiveness. Well, what about us? Are we supposed to forgive like that? Is forgiveness to be a key marker in the life of the believer? Yes. Let me show you. These are going to come real fast. They'll be up on the screen there for you. Look at Ephesians 4, 32. It says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. It got two of my points in my sermon right there in one verse. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are to forgive. You also are to forgive. Luke 6.37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Look at the most pronounced one of them at all, Matthew 6.15. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. That's about as straightforward as it gets, isn't it? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's just all these writers. That was their interpretation. Okay, well, let's go straight to the mouth of Jesus. Let's see what Jesus had to say about forgiveness. Let's look at Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, you got to know the mind of Peter here. He's thinking, boy, I'm going to get one over on Jesus right here. I'm going to say three, two, three. No, I'll say seven, and I'll impress Jesus. What did Jesus say? Look, I tell you not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that on the 491st time that you can withhold forgiveness from someone. He was saying it doesn't matter how many times someone sins against you. There must be no limit to forgiveness. We are to forgive. Now, I know what you're thinking. The reason I know what you're thinking is because I think the same way. You may say, you don't know what so-and-so has done to me. You're right. I don't know. But what I do know is this, is what God has done for us. We have been forgiven, therefore we must forgive. Maybe you're also thinking, well, some things are so heinous they can't be forgiven. Things like child abuse, rape, murder. You don't expect a believer to forgive those things, do you? Listen, those who have suffered from those kinds of evils will probably have to undergo professional counseling to overcome that. They can get to a place of forgiveness, though. It is possible. You know why? 
Because Jesus would not have told us you must forgive if it was not possible to do so in every situation. So it is possible. So let me ask this question. Why is the Bible so adamant about this forgiveness thing? If the fact that Jesus says you won't be forgiven of your sins if you don't forgive others, if that's not enough for you, let me give you another reason. You see, when you hold on to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness against someone, the only person you're hurting is yourself. Anger and bitterness will eat you from the inside out, and it will eventually destroy you. It's been said, and I'm not sure who to give credit to, but it's been said that when we hold bitterness and unforgiveness against someone, it's like you drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. You see, anger and bitterness, it ain't hurting them. They might not even know you're mad. It's only hurting you. Let go of it. Forgive. Another attitude, another attitude or, or excuse we throw up about forgiveness as well. When they say they're sorry or they apologize to me, then I will forgive them. Well, there's a problem with that argument. I didn't see that condition in any of those verses I put up on the screen there. And I didn't put up all the verses that deal with forgiveness, but I assure you none of them in the Bible say that it's a condition that they must apologize first. Listen, forgiveness is not optional for the believer, and I know it's hard. In fact, it's impossible. The only thing that makes it possible is Christ living in us. He is what makes it possible to forgive. So let me ask you, is there somebody you need to forgive today? Maybe you've been holding on to bitterness, and it's stealing your joy. Why don't you come to this altar this morning and release yourself from that? You can in just a minute, but I got one more point. I know it's 11.55, and Daniel said he's going to cut my mic off. Well, you know what? I'm just going to start yelling, okay? So let's look at, thank you, Gloria. Let's look at the last thing up there the centurion saw. It was the resurrection of the dead. Maybe you're thinking, Alan, you've been beating up on us this morning. I should have just stayed in bed, stayed home. Well, guess what? We all need a good beat down every now and then. Why? So we can be lifted back up. So I'm not going to leave you there. I want to give you some hope and encouragement this morning. Let's look back again at our text, Matthew 27, 50 through 53. But Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice. He gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs as their resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. So we see that Jesus wasn't the only dead person to come alive that weekend. But before we talk about those dead people coming to life, let's look at some other important things there in those verses real quick. First, we see that the curtain of the veil of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. The tearing of the veil symbolizes that the way to God has been opened. Amen. There is no more need of temples, priests, altars, sacrifices. Praise God. You and I can go boldly before God. Isn't that awesome? That was all accomplished because of Jesus. Look at number two. The earthquake reminds us of what happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus. Remember when the Ten Commandments were being given to Moses? It says the earth trembled. It quaked. You see the earthquake here at Calvary when Jesus gave up his life signifies that the demands of the law have been met. And the curse of the law has been abolished. Praise God. So we see that the torn veil indicates that Jesus conquered sin. The earthquake shows us that Jesus conquered the law and fulfilled it. And thirdly, the resurrections prove that Jesus defeated death. 
Matthew tells us that the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they appeared to many. Listen, there's more than enough evidence for the proof of resurrection. You may be saying, I've never seen the dead come back to life. Well, that's probably a good thing, okay? But one day we're going to witness it. Listen, these resurrections of the saints and Jesus himself were witnessed by many, recorded and written down. And now we have the testimony of those witnesses preserved in the scriptures. You see, with his death, Jesus defeated sin. Now with his resurrection, he has defeated death. Excuse me. When Jesus burst forth out of that grave, the head of Satan was crushed, as described in Genesis 3. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, because Jesus lives, you also will live. Just like those first century saints that came alive, you will also. One day, if Jesus has not come back first, all of us as believers, we're going to come to life again and have life eternally with Jesus. You ever thought about Saturday? You ever thought about that Saturday? We don't think about that in Scripture, do we? On Friday, Jesus was crucified and quickly buried because the Sabbath was coming. Saturday would be filled with weeping, mourning, loss, wondering what could have been. What would the followers of Jesus do now? What would life look like? The future was certainly in question. So think about it. Can our lives not look like that Saturday? We get so wrapped up in this life that we forget that Jesus has secured a better life for us. We're only here for a little while. This is temporary. All of it's going to pass away one day. That victory that you need, the answer to prayer that you may need may only be a day away. You know why? Because Sunday's coming. Sunday is coming. Sing in there, God will not leave you or forsake you. I don't know what problems you're facing this morning, but I do know that we can not only face our problems because of Jesus, but we can overcome them as well. One last thing. All of us here have lost loved ones that have gone on before us. I just had a close friend yesterday died of cancer. I worked with him for many years, and it breaks my heart. But you know what? I'm going to see him again. He's a believer. I'm going to see him again. Listen, I know the pain is real. The loss is great. But because of the resurrection... One day, we're going to be reunited with those loved ones. One day, those dry bones are going to rattle to life and come out of those graves, and we'll be reunited with them. What a day that will be. Listen, that reunion, though, is only going to happen if you yourself have trusted your life to Christ. If you haven't done that, don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. Come down here to this altar and settle it. So, in conclusion, and you say amen. What was, this, what was it that this centurion saw that changed him forever? He saw a man that had been welcomed a week earlier as a king and was now despised and rejected, and yet he offered forgiveness. He saw a man that had been beaten but not defeated. He saw a man that was mocked and scorned but not bitter and instead filled with compassion. He saw a dying man and as a result people coming to life. He saw a man who claimed to be the Son of God and proved it by raising himself from the grave just as he said he would. It was all of this that convinced him to declare, surely this was the Son of God. Somebody ask you this morning, are you convinced of that? Have you allowed Jesus to change you? He can if you'll let him. Let's stand and let's bow our heads right now with me.